This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tony Birch, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Tony is the author of four novels, five short fiction collections and two poetry books. In 2022, his book Dark as Last Night was awarded the Christina Stead Literary Prize and the Steel Rudd Literary Award. The book was also shortlisted for the 2022 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. He's here today to talk about his latest novel, Women and Children. It's a story about love and courage between two sisters and a sudden loss of childhood innocence. Now, Tony is a, can I say, a Fitzroy Black. He's an Indigenous person from there. Can you explain what that is? I haven't heard Fitzroy Black before. It was the greatest tribe in Australia. So the term was actually um, created by an Aboriginal artist, great friend of mine, Destiny Deacon. And it was to recognise that a lot of Aboriginal people who had lived in Fitzroy, particularly from the end of the Second World War onwards, so it was a very, very strong Aboriginal community, particularly from the 1960s onwards, a lot of political um, grassroots activism began in Fitzroy. And Destiny dealt with that term in a way that said, well, wherever else we come from, essentially this is who we are. We're a a diaspora and we're sort of a ragtag bunch at the best of times and rather than have to adhere to some traditional country and name which is obviously important we, we're certainly not devaluing that destiny's idea was that what though held us all in common anyone who'd grown up there was Fitzroy so Fitzroy Black became a provocative term that she created and worked with in her artwork but then for many of us since then, so that's now been getting on to 30 years, it's a really great way to um, a sort of mutual recognition of other people who went, who went through that experience. And the fact that, well, it confounds some people makes it even more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I like having labels. I'm a Lebanese Australian, right, and I live in the inner West. And largely you could say that Western Sydney is Arab and it's usually second or third generation, but there is that feeling. And I really value identifying with that community. It makes me feel that I belong. I love it. Yeah. And it's an interesting um, issue because, yeah, there's often a negative connotation where people say, where are you from? And people Mm. become, in some cases, rightly offended that, where do you mean where I come from? Yeah, I was Mm. born. Western Sydney or whatever, mm. or Fitzroy. But 
I can tell you now for Aboriginal people, when you say, where do you come from? It's actually a, it's a, it's a recognition. And, yeah, well, I went to school actually with a lot of Lebanese kids in the 70s from Brunswick. And before that, yeah, I went to Catholic school and all my mates were Italian. And when I went to my first high school, a lot of my mates were Greek Australian mm. and still friends today. And, you know, the fact that, their parents or they themselves were born in Greece is something we talk about a lot. We, it doesn't make them less Australian or it doesn't make them less valued, but I think it's important. You know, a friend of mine once told me about growing up in the Mediterranean in the island of Lippery, and I, I just thought, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, she ends up in Richmond in a fish, um, in a fruit and veg shop, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So telling your story of where you come from isn't a way of saying, well, you're not really from here. Alexis Wright has, has written about this, and I've written about this in relationship to Alexis's work, is that she asks questions like, you know, questions that no one else have ever asked. She says that, you know, when people come to Australia from Europe, do their ancestors come with them? Yeah, that's a really profound question. She means mm. that in a, you know, in a truly spiritual sense. So I think that for Aboriginal people, knowing that there are people here who themselves or their parents or grandparents came from all over the world, it's like saying, well, tell me about your your country of origin, which, again, is not to say that where you are now isn't as equally valued or it's not suggesting that you don't have a place here. I agree with that. I um, interviewed Brian Brown recently, the actor, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't know he was from Panania, which is right near Bank- Bankstown, right? Mm-hmm. And that is Western Sydney. And what I loved about our conversation was that he still had that connection and those people have the connection with him. There's an ownership of Brian Brown in Western Sydney. And it, it doesn't surprise me to hear he comes yeah. from Western Sydney. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful um, lack of formality in him that I really like and, yeah. and I think that's what you get when you grow up in places where people are, you know, direct with you, people are open with you. And, of course, when you're meeting people from, Again, who's who themselves or their folks came from all over the world. I mean, I was so lucky to grow up in the inner city of like the post-war migration into Fitzroy. There are probably 50 different nationalities mm. minimum. Mm. When you grow up amongst kids from all over the world and you you know, wish to play on a piece of land called the flat, which is a very poetic term for a flat piece of land with nothing <laughs> on it. Yeah. It's always just that. <laughs> it's like the United Nations. Yeah, you occasionally go, yeah. you learn great respect for each other. And I think it's a great mentor of mine, Annie Eleanor Harding, who is a Torres Strait Islander woman from Darnley Island, who's Destiny Deacon's mother, actually. She talked about the, you know, the potential of conflict between women of different ethnicities. But then she said, but in the end, she said, you sometimes got to bath your kid in the same bath or you've got to kitchen cook for them on the same kitchenette in a boarding house. She said, so you've got to find a way to get on with people. And she reckons that living in a boarding house in Fitzroy and meeting women from all over the world taught her to accept other people and and likewise for them to accept her. She talks about women from Italy seeing her very black face and being actually frightened, you know, Mm. dark woman, and then becoming very, very great friends with her. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about where you grew up and how it is that you came to writing because it's a unique story, isn't it? Um, well, not completely, but it's not, it's, it is unusual. So I, I grew up always in the inner city of Melbourne. I was born in Carlton, but we lived 
we lived for really 10 years of my life in Fitzroy, which then was, you know, incredibly poor. And again, migrants, black fellas, poor white people had a really notorious reputation, some of which wasn't justified, some was, but it was one of the, it was the suburb that was regarded as a sort of no-go zone of, of Melbourne up until the 70s when gentrification began. But our house was demolished to build a public housing estate, you know, well, high-rise estate, we call them in Melbourne. And so we were we were pushed out of Fitzroy, as were about eight households of my extended family. And we went to the live on a housing commission estate. So in Richmond, again, not suburban houses like you would probably know from out of Western Sydney, but high-rise estates in the inner city were really being built all over Melbourne at the time. So we lived on a housing estate in Richmond and my mum just got, she just got really sick of it. So we moved out of there when I was about 14 and went to live in Colling, which, which again was, yeah, regardless of a pretty rough suburb, but we were so lucky when we lived in Colling we lived right next to the river. So I spent a lot of time on the river. And so that I had a really um, a complicated childhood, but, I, you know, really educational, I think. And then I um, got expelled from a couple of high schools in, in one year, which is not easy to do. Um, no, <laughs> that almost, you almost need a medal for that. Had some really terrible <laughs> jobs, like many jobs. Yeah, I was a cleaner and um, I was a telegram boy. And then I was, I was lucky when I was 21, I got into the fire brigade here in Melbourne. That itself was a real change for me because it's a very disciplined job, but also you're given a lot of responsibility. And I think I responded to that. And then when I was about 28, I I because I, I was really smart at school, just didn't do any work. I decided to do yeah, you know, what you romantically call night school. Mm-hmm. So I did um a year 12 at a Tate College in Broadmeadows, which again is a very strong working class part of Melbourne, very similar to Western Sydney, although it's in the north in, in Melbourne be very similar demographic. Did a, a year 12 there and then did, did really well, like as in academic marks. Started at Melbourne University the year after. Um, I think I was 30. And I look, I didn't know what I was going to do at university. I I started an arts degree and I I had this sort of, when people would say, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm going to do a teaching degree. But that was just to make up a story mm-hmm. that, and get a job. Mm. I had no intention of, of being a high school teacher. And I just stayed there. I actually ended up doing a PhD, got a job in the history department. So I taught Aboriginal history and Australian history for about four years. And then in the early 2000s, I started to write short fiction. And at the same time, I was actually teaching, doing some sessional teaching in creative writing in creative nonfiction, just, you know, essay writing. And then I actually really enjoyed that form of teaching. So in 2002, I moved to the English department and taught there for about 13 years. And then wow. I, I moved to Victoria University. And then I've only just moved this year, moved back to Melbourne University. I applied for a position of professor of Australian literature. So that's what I'm doing for the next three years. Mm. So it's kind of not a linear path to writing, but firstly, what did your family think of you going to university after that wayward teenagehood? Uh, Were they surprised? Yeah, I reckon. I mean, my mum knew I was smart, 
Like when I was in primary school, I was taught by the Christian brothers and I actually did really well academically. Mm. Um, so I knew I was smart. Now it was an odd reaction because I had got really good year 12 results. So they would say, well, you know, you, you're going to university because you've done really well at year 12. But when I told my mum, she looked really, she actually looked really afraid. I, I still reckon that's, she looked fearful. And I think that what she was thinking was that, okay, he might have got this far. But he'll get now. He really gets shown up because no one from our family. Had, I think my older brother did year ten, maybe, but no one had gone near a university. Yeah, you know, I think my, my stepfather had got caught doing a robbery there when he was a young kid. But, um, <laughs> so, they were so he went to a university. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that? It is interesting. So my mum and stepdad they all grew up in around Carlton, around the university. They'd never stepped foot mm. in the grounds of it. It was like a, this alien place in the middle of a suburb. So she was really anxious. But what I think that what I loved about it is my older sister, Debbie, who was um, working at Ring Grip in Abbotsford. So her, her job was she had a great job testing spark plugs. So like you test about 500 spark plugs a day. And when I got into university, she just said, well, she said, I'm smarter than you. So if you go to university, anyone could go to university. <laughs> and then she went to university and she's got three degrees. I mean, she's a nursing sister. She's got a, a, a degree in psych nursing and an MA in, in palliative care. So it precipitated a whole change in the family. So she went to uni. Then my younger sister, who was also mature age, went and did a teaching degree. And then now, of course, our children, well, my, I have five children. They're all adults. Three of them have been to university and, and, and finished now. The other two did other stuff. But the the idea that they might go to university wasn't something that they felt they either weren't entitled to or weren't capable of. They had no fear of it. And, in fact, with my older kids, they used to spend a lot of time at uni with me when I was studying. But I think it's just what what's really good about that is that it's not a suggestion I would never say to anyone you should go to university. The only thing I would say, you should have the opportunity to go to university if that's what you choose to do. Mm. Three of mine did, two didn't. But the whole idea that higher education was something that didn't, that we weren't entitled to, that's completely, mm. that's completely out of the picture now. So I think that was, that's been a really positive change in the family. A real shift. Okay, so at what point did you start thinking about writing? Were you a great reader? Was it something you aspired to or was it what no, led you to write your first piece? I'm still not aspiring to it. <laughs> I, <laughs> look, I was, I've was. i always been a great reader and, you know, I've, talked, I've just had a school library named after me, a local high school library. Oh, congrats. Preston High School in the northern suburbs and, I talked at the opening of that event about, you know, you know, it's not surprising just how much I love books and love reading. So even when I was a kid and not studying, I never would be without a book. Mm. And I got my first library card from the Fitzroy Library when I was five. And I liked I wouldn't go anywhere now without a book, usually a novel, but not always. But I would never go out of without a book. Yeah, if I've got time sitting waiting for a tram or a train, I, walk, I catch a lot of public transport. I, I prefer not to drive, probably because I haven't got a driver's license. But, um, <laughs> so I'm always reading, and I think the thing is that um, when I was at the Christian Brothers, they used to have a subject called composition, but it was really just story writing. You'd get a provocation 
by the it was always on Friday afternoon. It was a great way to end the week. And you know, the Christian brother would give you a scenario about writing a story about something. And I was always really good at being able to sort of bang and 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 write a story. And even doing structure from a young age, it sort of came naturally. But when I went to university, to be quite honest, I was still reading. I published some poetry in the 80s when I was in the fire brigade. Most of it was, was pretty bad. And then when I was starting to do academic work, I actually published a lot of like strict academic writing in the sense I was writing um, stuff around contesting colonial history. Like I was involved in the dreaded history wars debate. I actually started to write short stories about 2000, but again, it wasn't with any intention of what it would be. And then when I decided I would like to teach more into creative writing than history, technically, technically, you could have a PhD in anything to teach in the program. So, but I thought, no, I, I, I didn't feel right. So, I, it sounds odd, but so while I was a full time academic, I actually enrolled in an MA in creative writing, and I produced a group of short stories that became my first book, Shadow Boxing. And then I thought, okay, I really want to do more of this. And it sort of, it flowed from there so that I just started focusing a lot more on on fiction from the early 2000s. And even though I've, so look, I mean, just to sidetrack a bit, when I left Melbourne Uni in 2015, I was a research professor at Victoria University for five years, but I was actually working on issues around not climate change in the scientific sense, but cultural impacts, impacts on community. So I I also, again, I was writing some much more academic essays yeah, referee journals, et cetera, around that issue. But my writing, my creative writing is, is, is always happening. So like with Women and Children, which has just come out, I finished writing it a year ago and I'm actually writing another novel as we speak. So I tend to be always doing a, a novel or, or thinking about a novel or, or thinking about a short story. And um, I think it because I love plot and I love character, I think that I've always loved you know, what we might call traditional forms of storytelling. And whether it's been a direct impact or not, my background is all is, is around storytelling. And I think that people underestimate how much we learn about how to craft a story if we're good storytellers or we're good listeners. Mm-hmm. So that when I was a teenager and we lived in the housing commission of a night, we used to all the laundries where the women washed was on, were on the roofs and the drying lines were on the roofs. And every night sort of kids would take over the roof and you'd have, you know, um, well, in those days, transistor radios playing music and stuff, and you'd just be sitting around smoking cigarettes and people would just be telling, kids would just be telling stories. And I was good at crafting the story. And I think you are, you're learning about the craft of and structure of writing when you're doing that. Even if you, I mean, when I was 15, I didn't think, oh, this is the beginning of my career as a novelist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tell me, short story and long form, uh, a fiction book, are two entirely different things, don't you think, in terms of craft? Yeah. yeah. And tell me about that, the transition and how you go back and forward. I mean, for me, I, I, I love short stories. I like short stories because of how you can tell a story in such few words, and usually it's a snapshot yeah. of, of a story. To me, it looks seamless when when it's a good short story and so complete in its storytelling. Yeah, I mean, short stories are more enjoyable to write and people might think, oh, why? Because they're shorter. It's not that at all. No. I mean, for me, and, you know, I hesitate a little bit because, yeah, writing is a little, it can be quite idiosyncratic about what works for a, a particular writer. But what I do love about a short story is once I know I've got one or I've got the beginnings of one, I literally start to, you know, tell the story, frame it, think about it in my head. And I might write a few notes, but, you know, like I'm a, I'm a lifelong distance runner. And if I go for a long run, and not purposefully, but I'll be running and then I'll be, I'll be thinking about an idea for a story and by the time I've come home I've composed a whole scene and I might write some notes down. So I think there's a confidence as well. So I'll be thinking about a short story. I'll be doing that, sort of crafting it in, in my head take a few little notes, but by the time it comes to sit down and write, I'm actually really confident that it's going to work. And when I say publishable, I don't mean it will be published because you still get, you know, rejections a lifelong career. I'm confident before I've written the word, I reckon I've got a publishable story here. If I keep working hard and then you have to work really hard to get that to happen. So that, that it's a very particular way. The oddity about a novel I mean, one is you can't carry it in your head. Well, certainly I can't, so there's a lot more. I still use old-fashioned index cards for my novel writing, is that you are faced with a lot more of uncertainty as you're doing the project so that, for me, there's never a sort of fully confident, you know, I'm on top of this, this is working perfectly or this is working well. You have really mixed days so that you could write a scene in a in a novel that you feel. Uh, so in um, Women and Children, one of my favourite scenes is when Joe watches his auntie and his mum put the record player out and dance in the kitchen to their records. I really, I remember writing that scene. And when I finished that scene, I thought that's that's really what I wanted out of it. So you have that confidence, but it's a lot, it's a, it's a hard, it's harder work of putting it together. You've got to go back and again with me, you got to do some repair work so that if something happens on you know, page 150, you realize, well, to make that really valid, this should have happened in page 30 or, you know, things like that. So you are going back and sort of re- refashioning, reshaping a lot more. So that is, it's it's work. Mm. Um, so so it, is, it is different. I think that I'm surprised often that 
yeah, when I started out, I just yeah, and some people still think this. I say, oh well, yeah, short story writing is like an apprenticeship to doing a novel. Like yeah, you, we'll start off, we'll make a leg of a chair, and then one day you make the whole chair. It's not like that at all. I and don't there, agree with that. Yeah, there are some people who are essentially short story writers. Mm. And more surprising, so that yeah, when you meet other writers at um, festivals and stuff, I've met really yeah, really great novelists who who have said to me they they can't even comprehend how they could write a short story. It's a, it's yeah. a it's such a mystery to them that they can't stop themselves from writing long form. And also with the short story, you're getting that emotion, that feeling that you're getting, you know, the, the arc of a story, you're getting the beginning, the plot and the end. But in those very few words, you have to get feeling across. And I yeah. think that's that's the the challenge really, how yeah. you present that. I mean, it's easy. Well, I'm not a writer, but I would say because you've got more words in fiction, that would be easier to do. Yeah, and I think the other thing about short story is that it requires, well, I don't know if the terms work, it requires a generosity from the reader because mm. the reader is in much more of a, a partnership with the writer so that, you know, some of my short stories where you might say the endings are a little open-ended, a frustrated reader might think, oh, that's not a proper ending or I want an ending. A good reader and a generous reader will love the fact that you've left them something to really contemplate, and that's what I love. So I, I remember a, a, a very distinct story of mine, um, The Ghost of Hank Williams. The last scene is of a guy who's, you know, he's been estranged from his daughter for many years. He's a, he's a drinker. He's been in trouble, and his daughter sends him her new address, which is on the coast in another state. She says he's got a granddaughter and she would like to see him. And he goes to the railway station, he buys a ticket, and then he goes home and he packs his case. And the last scene is him sitting in the park when he's on the way to the station and he stops and sits down. And I wanted to end the story in a way, I think, does he have the courage to get up and keep going, which is harder, or does he go back home and just you know, go, go and have another drink? And I didn't want to resolve that because I would like the reader to think that's really the point of the story, to contemplate what courage does it take to face your demons and to maybe seek redemption um, as opposed to, the, yeah, what might be seen as a tragedy, but the easiest way out for this guy would be not to go and get back on the drink. But I don't know what he did. And I like the fact that that's asking the reader to to think about what might happen rather than you conclude it for them. Mm, mm, I like that a lot. Tell me why the idea of women and children came from. Um, well, as a sort of idea, it came from the title. So that in my real life, in my life, so being a survivor of domestic violence, both as a kid and a witness to my mum being um, assaulted many times over many years, you're uh, a survivor, um, that's obvious, and we know that um, domestic violence is a crime overwhelmingly committed by men against women and children, so that when it's spoken about women and children, of course, are the innocent victims of this crime, but then being a male child, you also grow up to be a man, and therefore that you don't have to be a perpetrator to be complicit in that crime because as a man, you, you know, it's important to stand up 
and speak about domestic violence is important when men act in a way that's wrong that you 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 talk about that it's really so i've got four daughters i need to be a, a role model not for them but them to see me as a man who rejects violence so it was really to deal with that sort of feeling of complexity um that was one thing but then the other issue was really that once i started to write i thought well I know that there's going to be violence hovering around this novel and we see the the ramifications or the outcome of that violence. I decided, one, I wouldn't show any of that violence directly. I wouldn't describe any of that violence directly. But secondly, that I wanted to convey the fact that the home that these children grow up in, um, Joe and Ruby, is a loving home. Not only that, but they have loving men around them so in the case of charlie the grandfather and his mate ranji and that wasn't to sort of um, soften the book in a political way it was to recognize the fact that there are terrible men in the lives of these children and and then and, and there are good men and of course mm-hmm. they're very strong women so i wanted to write a novel where love was at the heart of it and the joe and Ruby, because of the love of their mother and the love of their grandfather, I mean, as Ruby becomes aware of more than even Joe, it, it just makes the crime even more less tolerable and really angers the 13-year-old girl eventually to know that someone would, would harm her auntie. So it, I wanted to write a story that was loving but confronted the um, outcomes of, of violence at the same time, and particularly in this case, in this time, the damage of secrecy, of course, the mm. damage when people refuse to or are unable to speak about the crime that is around them. Mm. Okay, we're out of time. I just want to say something about your work. There is, you know, from my perspective as a reader, uh, there's a softness to its harshness, if you like. Yeah, well, well, I think that um, yeah. I think there are two reasons for that. One is to, I know the word's too hard, but at a personal level, I need not to protect myself. But so some people say, "Oh, how autobiographical is the material?" And I, I was a pains to write in the end of the book that it's not my story. And the reason being, or the wonder is, if I were to say, okay, I'll write an autobiographical story about my experience of domestic violence, it would be shocking. Mm. I don't think anyone would read it. Mm. It would be impossible to find, it would be really hard to find love in it. And it would be visceral because my memories of family violence, both in being assaulted and witnessing assault, are, just, are shocking. So I don't want to write that story because one is, I think it's too damaging, but this might sound soft, but I often think I've got four grandkids and I've I've looked after each of them before they start school. I've, I've got a new, uh, one starting school and a new one coming to me next year. I do think of my relationship with my grandkids and how it is very soft and loving. I'd rather tell a story that conveys the value of those experiences rather than focus on a negative so that I do think that, yeah, when my children and my, well, eventually my, when they see my work, they'll say, okay, but at the heart of this is is hope rather than if I wrote an autobiographical novel about domestic violence, 
I mean, unless I really started to shift it, there there, there would seem to be no hope. So that mm. that's one of the reasons. The other one is it, it is craft, and you, you talked about in relationship to short fiction is that I'm really interested in physicality. In other words, again, you know, in a novel like mine, The White Girl, where's what people refer to as the bath scene in this scene where Ruby bathes her auntie Una, there is actually intimacy between people in a family which involves physical touch is really important. And when you talked about your own upbringing, I know this from families that I grew up amongst, you know, in the non-Anglo world, physical touch to convey love is really important. So we're in an environment now, and I understand the reasons why we're, you know, it's about not, not, yeah, of course, not touching people without their permission. I understand all of that. But in my family, you know, hugging, holding on to people is really important. So in my work, there's a lot of physical touch without anyone ever saying, I love you. The love is conveyed through physicality. So I like that tenderness to be a uh, the opposite of, of course, physicality, which is damaging. And I think that the softness of a hand, there's a great Alice Walker poem called women and she says in the poem these women have fists as well as hands Mm -hmm. and what it's about is the open hand for the love for the family and the fist to bang down doors of authority so it's a great example of women being using their bodies and their physicality to show love to their own family but also make demands of those who would otherwise disregard them Mm Oh, Tony Birch, that was so well said and so beautifully put. Um, The book is called Women and Children. Congratulations and thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for um, having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.